0: This week on the Table Podcast. People who use DCBs frequently will think this is uh, common knowledge, but I think for the trainees, it might not be common knowledge. Uh, and that is the way to think about DCB is that it's just delivering drug. It is just a vehicle to get drug on the wall. You're not treating the lesion with angioplasty. You are laying down drug on a vessel that has already been treated and you have lumen gain with whatever treatment you have provided. And the uh, drug, the DCB is just used to uh, prevent any degree of restenosis. That's why I have it after follow up angio with residual narrowing greater than 3% or flow lumen dissection. So if you, your vessel looks pretty and you're happy with it, then you can lay down some drug.
1: I think one time in training you described it to me, and I could be wrong, but I think one time in training you described it to me as kind of like the sprinkles that you're laying down after your cake looks nice.
0: That sounds like something I would say, (laughs) yes.
1: (laughs) That's how I describe it to people now, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular.
2: Boston Scientific's Aluvia drug eluting Peripheral Stent is a purpose-built stent platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease. In two head-to-head trials, Aluvia demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to other therapies and is setting a new standard of care in SFA stenting. To learn more about how Aluvia can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com slash Aluvia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A- from boston scientific
1: i'm your guest host dr ali behetti coming to you from tacoma washington my guest this week is one of my mentors and favorite people in the world dr luke wilkins from the university of virginia luke thank you for being on the show
0: thank you so much for having me i haven't had such a warm greeting on a back table podcast i appreciate that
1: our topic for today is luke's stenting algorithm in sfa pop disease we have posted the algorithm along with the podcast And for those of you following along at home, I highly recommend looking at the flowchart during this discussion. Luke, could you give us an introduction to the algorithm and how you came up with it?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, I I developed this algorithm mostly because of where I am practicing, which is at the University of Virginia. And uh, when I was going through the training process, I really felt like the most frustrating part of the entire training process was trying to figure out what the attending was thinking and how they made decisions about what therapy to provide or what to provide therapy and and what to do. So I tried to really hard to develop a concrete algorithm in my head and then put it down on paper so that I could talk to fellows about, you know, if I see this, then I do this. So that's why I developed the algorithm.
1: Am I right to assume that when you look at this algorithm, you're looking at a pre-procedure CTA and then going down the path?
0: Yes, I would say on 90% of patients that I see, I have a pre-procedure CTA to help guide the treatment. There are, of course, patients that, especially in the Central Virginia area, that come from far away and uh, they come with only ABIs and arterial duplex. And we don't obtain a CTA uh, pre-procedure, but that is uh, the exception rather than the norm. But it does help to review this, our flowchart and, and talk about uh, what we're going to be doing for our patients with that CTA because it really helps guide what kind of equipment we're going to have in the room and and what everyone should be expecting.
1: So interesting thing out where I work, I've had a couple of insurance companies now that make us do a diagnostic angiogram before they'll approve any treatment. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Curse and benefit, but mostly curse, right? But it's kind of nice for me sometimes because I know exactly what I'm getting into before I even start the angio. Yeah. But yes, with what we've trained, pre-procedure CTA is a a no-brainer for me. So, back to the algorithm, let's walk through it together. First, looks like you have to decide the task classification of the lesions. By the way, for our listeners, we're also going to include a link to the task guidelines for reference. So, the first step is to decide if it's a Task C or D lesion. And at that point, you consider a discussion of bypass. In real life, how often are you treating Task C and D patients endovascularly?
0: Very often. I would say that it is very much the exception that these uh, patients uh, get sent for surgery first. The advanced peripheral arterial disease makes up a significant component of our practice here at UVA, and there are a lot of endovascular procedurists in our community, and our surrounding catchment area, and so a lot of those kind of quote-unquote chip shot cases kind of get uh, gobbled up in the community before they really make it to us, so so we end up with a more challenging and I think more fun cases, So, but yes, these frequently get treated uh, from an endovascular approach.
1: Got it. So the next part in the decision tree is whether or not there's an occlusion or not. If not, we go down the easy path, which is the top half of the graph. So then we have to decide if there's significant disease of less than 10 centimeters.
0: Yeah, and I think this is an important point, if there's significant disease less than 10 centimeters. Now, this is very much where there's a little bit of creative license in this flowchart. I mean, there's lots of different opinions on on how best to proceed with peripheral disease. This is just one way to approach it. I, I very much encourage everyone listening to take this advice with a grain of salt. You have to kind of develop your own uh, algorithm that's uh, based on a variety of factors, you know, where you practice, uh, what you're uh, referring docs and how they approach treatment of a peripheral arterial disease. And if they believe in stenting or believe in atherectomy, et cetera. So it's uh, very much going to be a site and practitioner specific. That being said, for me, 10 centimeters, I have found that in lesions that are greater than 10 centimeters, they don't respond to atherectomy as well. And they tend to have a increased risk of uh, distal embolization with atherectomy once you get into those uh, longer lesion lengths.
1: This might be a good point to touch on filters. Are you a big filter fan?
0: I am a big filter fan for uh, certain instances. Those instances would be if you're doing any work post-lysis. I find that those have a high likelihood of having a distal embolization. If you have less than two runoff vessels, and this is a patient with a CLTI, and you're worried about uh, preserving all the below knee flow. And if you're uh, doing atherectomy, depending on the atherectomy device, but on the type of atherectomy device I'm most likely to use, uh, I frequently uh, will use distal protection.
1: I see. Would you care to expound on which atherectomy devices are your favorite or maybe save that for a little later?
0: Since we're on the, the top half of the of the flow chart, I think it's reasonable to talk about it because the next step is if you are less than 10 centimeters and that's when I'll do atherectomy and PTA. And, and the most frequent atherectomy device that, that I use is directional atherectomy, which is the uh, Hawk one device.
1: Can I clarify something, Luke, real quick? So you're saying that significant disease less than 10 centimeters If there's not any, you just do PTA. But if it's more than 10 centimeters, then we do atherectomy plus PTA. Am I reading that right?
0: No, you're not reading that right. Significant disease less than 10 centimeters. So sorry, that's like a double negative or double positive. I don't know what the shit that is. But it's If there's significant disease that's less than 10 centimeters, then do atherectomy and PTA. If not, I'll just go PTA. And if it looks good, then I'll DCB it.
1: I see. Okay.
0: You get what I'm saying? So if it's long segment disease, I get really worried that you're going to start chewing up a bunch with atherectomy and you're going to end up showering because you're just increasing the risk that you're going to uh, develop a, a distal emboli.
1: Okay. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because I've been reading your flowchart wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Th- and this was, so Sahar and I developed this like three years ago. We were right before he left. I can't remember when that was. And we were just talking about it and just talking about how we noticed that there was always issues with distal embolization with these long lesions. And that was more true When we were doing CSI and we were doing lots of orbital atherectomy and you were just creating all of this sanding of these vessels and the longer segment you went, the more you're going to be showering stuff down. So is it still reasonable to assume that your distal embolic rate is going to be high with other devices such as directional atherectomy when you compare it to something like orbital atherectomy? I'm not really sure, but I still kind of use this rule of thumb because it seems that that would make sense that you're increasing the risk with these longer lesions and doing directional atherectomy over greater than 10 centimeters takes a long time. And so I get pretty impatient. <laughs> <It> sure <laughs> So does. that's the other reason is <laughs> that from a time perspective, <laughs> it gets pretty annoying.
1: Okay. So coming back to the, the flowchart. So after you've done your treatment, atherectomy plus PTA, then you will do a follow up Angie Graham um, and look for residual narrowing of greater than 30% or a flow limiting dissection. That sounds pretty self-explanatory. Do you use IVIS in any of these straightforward cases?
0: I will be the first person to admit that I should use IVIS more. And uh, I think that in an ideal world, you would use IVIS in every case and you would use it pre and post. Given the Time involved in setting up the device and loading it and doing it pre and post. I think it's from a, a time perspective and efficiency perspective, it can be limiting. And there are some people who will do IVIS only pre or IVIS only post, and I feel like that. I don't get that. Yeah, to me, I think you kind of need the both to make an informed decision and to really uh, see what uh, kind of efficacy the treatment that you've given has provided. But that being said, I usually use it when I see something that I am uncertain on, on the angiogram. So if you think, oh, that looks like there's um, a little bit of narrowing in there and it's uncertain on a a secondary view, or you just see that the contrast is slightly lighter and maybe you're just seeing a lesion on Foss, then I think it's worthwhile doing the IVUS as a, uh, again, as a decision making point and a way to decide if you need to do something additional.
1: Got it. So the next step in the flowchart says, if there's no dissection or residual narrowing, you proceed with the DCB.
0: Just a quick note for for any trainees that may be listening uh, with regards to DCB. People who use DCBs frequently will think this is uh, common knowledge, but I think for the trainees, it might not be common knowledge. Uh, and that is the way to think about DCB is that it's just delivering drug. It is just a vehicle to get drug on the wall. You're not treating the lesion with angioplasty, you are laying down drug on a vessel that has already been treated and you have lumen gain with whatever treatment you have provided and the uh, drug, the DCB is just used to uh, prevent any degree of restenosis. That's why I have it after follow up angio with residual narrowing greater than 3% or flow lumen dissection. So if you, your vessel looks pretty and you're happy with it, then you can lay down some drug.
1: I think one time in training, you described it to me, and I could be wrong, but I think one time in training, you described it to me as kind of like the sprinkles that you're laying down after your cake looks nice.
0: That sounds like something I would say. Yes.
1: (laughs) That's how I describe it to people now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether or not you said that, I'm attributing it to you.
0: (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it.
1: All right. So, that covers the easy stuff on our flowchart. Now we're getting to some of the harder stuff. So, let's say you come across an occlusion. Tell me what you do.
0: So the first thing that I do is try and and cross it true lumen. So I will say that it seems that not to use the 10 centimeter rule again, but it seems that if it's less than 10 centimeters, I have higher likelihood of being able to across a lesion true lumen. That being said, I'll try on every single one. So when it comes to chronic total occlusions or CTOs, they're are two general ways to attempt to cross them true lumen. You can try and go through microchannels uh, within the the CTO. These microchannels develop because they still need to uh, have blood flow to certain components of the vessel wall. So these uh, microchannels develop just to get blood flow to the vessel wall and keep that, that component of the vessel wall open. So with a small, and by small, I mean a, a 0.014 or 018 hydrophilic guide wire, sometimes you can select these microchannels and Traverse through these microchannels. I haven't had a lot of success with that. Maybe I'm terrible at it, but I've never had a lot of success with traversing microchannels. The way that I've had more success is by boring through a CTO. Sometimes with a uh, more weighted tip guide wires, uh, you can bore through a CTO just by pulverizing through that occluded vessel. There are also crossing devices, and this is on our flowchart. Uh, consider a crossing device. I do not use crossing devices in my practice. A lot of people um, have uh, report success with uh, crossing devices and and use them uh, religiously. I'm just not one of those people.
1: So crossing devices, tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so there are many um, different types of crossing devices that are on the market. Um, There are two general flavors for how the crossing devices work. One is is used by the Avenger company with the Ocelot and the Kitty Cat. Those are not made up names. Those are the actual names of the devices. And uh, they use a sloped wedge to kind of bore through the, the CTO. The Ocelot uses OCT, optical coherence tomography, to help guide that so you can see exactly where it's crossing. The images are actually really pretty. And it's a neat device. And it's kind of a cool name on it. And so there's other devices that also use kind of that boring technique to kind of have like a drill going through that atheromatous plaque that mechanism is strong enough to make it through that plaque but not so strong as it will exit the vessel wall and the other method that they uses is, is an actuating tip that will again will be strong enough to bore through that CTO but not so strong that it that it exits the vessel wall
1: great so let's say you attempt true lumen and you are successful yay okay so what's your what's the next step
0: well, first we, we do, we say yay back when, when, when Sahar was here, we would always do this little dance where he held up his, his pinkies and he'd uh, do this little shimmy. Do you yeah, remember yeah. that when you do oh. that? Oh,
1: oh, I remember the Sahar dance. Yeah. 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 So we, <laughs> so
0: that's, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to fill uh Sahar's void in many ways, uh, but not that. Did you
1: get, did that, you get Dan Sheeran so. to do the dance? Is that how, is that how you did it?
0: <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, we, that that will never, ever happen. <laughs> I can never see Dan doing that. But so, yeah, if we get through uh, and we're uh, through and we verify that we're in uh, true lumen on the other side, that's when I'll consider uh, doing atherectomy within the CTO. So that's why I do think that there is benefit in staying true lumen, especially when the lesion is less than 10 centimeters, because I feel that you can get a lot of benefit from doing atherectomy and PTA in, in those patients. If you're able to say true lumen is longer than 10 centimeters. I still think it might be beneficial to do atherectomy. Again, I think there's some increased uh, risk associated with it, but depending on the atherectomy device, you may be able to achieve a significant lumen gain without the negative of placing a stent.
1: Okay. So that kind of pops us back into the top half of the flow chart and we're back into bland. we've already covered.
0: Yeah. I tried to make as many interconnecting arrows as possible on this so that it was as confusing as possible. No, I, I didn't. But it's so much of this overlaps that I wanted to make sure that we tied it back to to when there was overlap.
1: So let's say you attempt True Lumen, you fail. What's your next step?
0: So then I typically go with a sub-animal recan.
1: Great. Could you tell me a little bit more about your technique for that?
0: Sure. So I think the, I would say the most practitioners will start with a, a glide wire and angle tip catheter, um, either a four or five French angle tip catheter. I like to use telescoping catheters frequently. So I'll use a 018 crossing catheter telescoped inside of an 035 crossing catheter. And then I use a 014 floppy tip guide wire for uh, getting into the subintimal plane. I think this provides a lot of support for getting through a CTO. If someone said that that's overkill, I would say, yeah, sometimes it is to use that level of inventory for crossing a CTO, but there are many times where it'll pay off. So this allows me to have a lot of stability because we're having telescoping catheters inside and uh, provides a lot of support to that leading 018 crossing catheter and that hydrophilic tip glide wire. And uh, then, when you get all the way through and you telescope your O35 and you re enter True Lumen, you have an O35 catheter there that is then capable of uh, placing an embolic protection device if you are using that. So, it makes it very easy to drop in a uh, distal protection device and then use whatever treatment you decide.
1: Mm, okay. That helps me understand a little bit more about um, why we do that telescoping system and, and why we do it that way. I, I appreciate that explanation. Okay. So, let's say you're going subintimal for a while. Any tips for Early career folks about how to get back into true lumen.
0: Yeah, so um, you know, it's it's many of the times that we are doing subinimal recanalization, we'll have spontaneous reentry below the level of the lesion. Spontaneous reentry occurs once we are in an area that is a healthy, that has a open lumen, and we uh, do not have significant atherosclerotic calcification within the vessel wall. Uh, when you have very heavily calcified vessel walls, uh, spontaneous reentry is going to be a little bit more challenging because it is unlikely to find a, like kind of a weak point, quote unquote, in the wall in which your catheter will be able to point towards and your guide wire will spontaneously re-enter. So there are lots of different tricks and techniques for getting re-entry in cases in which you do not have spontaneous re-entry. There are a number of re-entry devices that can help significantly for re-entry. These include the interior balloon I don't use that as frequently. It's a kind of looks like a pontoon boat uh, where it uh, self-orients within the sub plane. And then you use a very stiff guide wire uh, that has a hook at the end to kind of poke back into the true lumen. Uh, a lot of people use that and have a lot of success with it. I use the Outback device probably uh, most frequently. Uh, that is a sharp reentry uh, cannula. It is has L and T markers on it that help you orient within the sub plane to direct you towards the true lumen. It is uh, best used in cases when you know exactly where the vessel is with respect to the device or where the true lumen is with respect to the device that is. So usually vessels that are more heavily calcified and allow you to see exactly where you're uh, driving your sharp reentry cannula. And those are the the best cases to use the Outback device. Alternatively, there's the Pioneer device, which uh, uses Ivis and uh, color flow so you can see exactly where the uh, true lumen is and that helps you direct your needle throw. The Pioneer does have a very useful feature to it, which is You can uh, adjust the length of the needle throw so that if you are further out in that subintimal plane or you have a larger vessel with a smaller component of a true lumen, you can adjust that throw and get your sharp reentry cannula into the open portion of the vessel.
1: Is there a point of no return where you've gone subintimal pretty far into the vessel or, you know, pretty far down and you're getting worried and you plan to reenter? Are there any tips for that?
0: What do you mean by point of no return? Now you've made me question. You know, I don't have a lot of quit in me when it comes to crossing a CTO, so I've never gotten to that point where I've given up. Is there? (laughs) Now you're making me question. Should I? Should I think about times where I should give up and not cross these? Not you.
1: (laughs) For for um, us lowlier individuals, for us humans down here. No, I'm just really
0: stubborn, (laughs) and that's all. I mean, I guess um, I'm trying to think of an instance in which you would say, "Well, now I have to open it." I guess. If you went subintimal and you created a long subintimal track that cut off a branch vessel distal to the component in which there was open lumen, and you felt like, well, now I've made things worse and I better open up some of this or else I'm going to lose a key runoff vessel or something along those lines. Then I think I would say, well, now this is, has to happen. Yeah. But uh, just my pride alone will, will not let me stop. <laughs> okay. That and I'm afraid Fritz will judge me. That's the other reason too. So.
1: <laughs> the judgment of Fritz, the ultimate yeah. the ultimate <laughs> arbiter. <laughs> so, okay. So let's say, so you're successful with your subintimal recanalization. Mm-hmm. Now the next step in the flow chart comes down to vessel diameter. Could you speak about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So it has been our kind of experience. The medical literature is kind of a plus minus on this one, but it's been our experience that Larger vessels do well uh, with stinting. So if you're in the stint portion of the algorithm, vessels that are greater than five millimeters tend to do better, at least in our experience. So when uh, vessels are greater than five millimeters, uh, we feel like the uh, stent patency is, is better in those scenarios. Um, we've transitioned to doing most stents will be drug-eluting stents under most conditions. There are certain instances in which we'll uh, consider alternative stent types. It is very, very, very infrequent that I place only a bare metal stent. And by bare metal stent, I mean a traditional nitinol stent, non-interwoven bare metal stent. It's very infrequent that I do that. Usually it'll be a drug-eluting stent. I will consider an interwoven stent if the vessel is smaller or if there's a, a significant calcification. Some might say, how do you, what do you consider significant calcification? Which is a very fair criticism, and it's really hard to tell what exactly you would consider significant calcification. There's no good grading system or agreed upon grading system for deciding what is heavily calcification and what is not. But uh, given the radial strength of interwoven stents, I feel that more significantly calcified lesions do better with those interwoven stents. And if it's a particularly long lesion, uh, then I will consider uh, covered stents, self-expanding covered stents, in that situation.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah. That part's pretty self-explanatory, the stent choices. It does seem like the drug-looting stent decision is relatively newer in your algorithm. Is that correct?
0: I would agree with that assessment. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, with uh, drug-looting technologies, I think, since the meta-analysis that was uh, released. However, I think with, there's been several good papers that have been uh, released since that time. There was the Schneider paper in 2019 in the Journal of uh, American College of Cardiology. There was Ido Weinberg's paper in uh, JAMA Cardiology in 2019. And there's another paper in the European Heart Journal in 2020 that really, I think, can help put investor proceduralists who treat peripheral disease, they can put their minds at, at ease for using drug-eluting technologies. In addition, given uh, some of the data that's been released recently with uh, drug loading stents, I think that they have uh, shown clear superiority in, the, in a variety of conditions. And that's where I try and put them into the algorithm.
1: Okay. I'd like to go back to the part about vessels less than 5 millimeters. I see some advanced intervention after IVIS is indicated. Could you tell me a little bit more about your experience with these?
0: Yeah, so that's the the made up part of the algorithm where I was getting to. No, um, so um, with when there's less than five millimeters, your your choices, I think, are a little bit more limited, and these are the the more challenging uh, vessels to treat. There are some interwoven, some of the interwoven stents uh, come in uh, smaller diameters for these uh, smaller vessels, and I think those do very well in this in this patient population that have uh, smaller fem pop segments. I do try and get more aggressive with non-metal related techniques such as a more aggressive ballooning and I don't mean higher inflation pressures, I just mean uh, longer balloon inflation times. I try and get more aggressive with uh, doing excisional plaque removal with directional atherectomy and you could also consider TAX, uh, which are, if you're not familiar with TAX, they're basically... Very, very, very short stents that are basically kind of one, one strut length, or and um, they are just used to tack up those small little areas of dissection flaps. Yeah,
1: I haven't had a chance to use those yet. They have them um, at one of the main hospitals I work at, but the opportunity just hasn't presented itself. It seems like it would be
0: neat. You haven't, you haven't IVS'd enough. That's why. <laughs> exactly. So I think. It-
1: <laughs> I only ivest before. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But I do think that with with IBIS, especially after a long segment CTO in which you're uh, creating these dissection planes, there are many times where you can you can do an arteriogram and, and it looks you're like, ah it looks pretty good. But then if you Ivis, then you'll see these long segments of luminal narrowing that are created by these uh, dissection flaps. And, and I think that's where those tacks can can have a significant role.
1: I see. Very, very cool. I'll have to check them out. In patients who have fempop pop disease and then they also have below the knee disease, do you stage their interventions or do you try to do it all at
0: once? It depends on on why they're presenting so if this is a if you're speaking of a claudicant then i i will not touch their below knee disease i think there is very low likelihood of a significant clinical benefit in patients that have below knee disease that are presenting with claudication as their as their primary complaint in patients that have a cli or clti and they're presenting with a wound that's a whole different story and so if they are presenting with a wound and they have fempop disease and below knee disease, if you fix the fempop disease and they still do not have inline flow to the wound, then I think it is in the patient's best interest to have that inline flow restored. Now, whether or not this fits into how long you have the room for or how long the patient is able to tolerate the procedure, or if you're uh, going into call time, that's another story then those cases can be staged to make it a better experience for the patient and a better experience for your work day but uh, i do think that ultimately those patients require inline flow to achieve healing it is uh, it seems less and less likely that um, relying on arborization to achieve wound healing is a good strategy
1: sure definitely i think that's one of the tenets of clti is inline flow to the wound there's your opinion. thank you for
0: using the term clti instead of cli i appreciate that <laughs>
1: Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you put these folks on medication-wise after the procedure?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, medical management of these patients is a very, very, very important topic. You know, I think we work very closely with our, our vascular medicine, our vascular surgery, and our cardiology colleagues to make sure these patients are on an appropriate uh, medication regimen. In any patient that we uh, place uh, stents in, uh, we try and go for a dual antiplatelet doing aspirin and plavix. And it's also uh, very important that these patients are on a smoking cessation program or are just not smoking that is less frequent in the uh, central virginia area uh, but it is important that these patients are enrolled in a smoking cessation program in addition if these are claudication patients being involved in a, a walking program or at least be have a
1: supervised exercise therapy
0: yeah or being given instruction on on how to uh, implement walking into their daily routine and making sure they're on aggressive uh, statin and, and hypertensive management is mm. also very important
1: i see yeah and then uh, what, what would you do for clinical follow up when do you see them back in your clinic
0: So I typically see patients back at 30 days because our patients typically come from far away. They're usually admitted for overnight observation. That is, uh, I would not say that at all that that's a requirement for most of these patients, but it it seems to make for a better patient experience uh, when they're driving from far away. So we typically admit them overnight. If we do that, uh, then we get ABI's post in the morning. And that helps kind of just uh, set a, a new benchmark or a new baseline for uh, what their ABIs are. And then we uh, get a repeat ABI in 30 days to see how how much of those change. So I get a repeat ABIs, PVRs, and arterial duplex I'm at 30 days, see how they're doing and see if they've had clinical improvement. If they're doing well, great. I uh, bring them back at uh, three months and uh, repeat ABIs, PVRs, and arterial duplex. Um, then if that looks okay, then I uh, follow them up six months after that.
1: So... One month, three months, and then nine months, basically.
0: Yep. That's yep. your
1: Then after nine months, if they look good, they're discharged from your care or you see them annually?
0: Yeah, I see them annually. And when I see them annually, I get, uh, again, uh, ABS PBRs and a duplex.
1: Got it. That's great. Side note, one time when I started doing angios as an attending in Milwaukee, I like tried to admit them overnight and just got made fun of incessantly. <laughs> and I was like, but that's what we did at UVA."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that when people like Zeve had, uh, you know, always uh, wondered why we admitted patients overnight. But I, I really do think that we're not a large, metro- if you've not been to Charlottesville, you, this is not a large metropolitan area and patients frequently drive from greater than two hours away. And uh, if you get done with a patient's case and at, you know, five o'clock and then they've got uh, two hours bed rest and you're sending them out at 730 to go drive three hours. Back into the very rural areas of uh, Virginia and West Virginia it might be safer that they're they're here in the hospital where you can kind of uh, monitor them and make sure that they're comfortable and okay.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, Luke, I think we've we've covered uh, most of what I was planning. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in regards to PAD and stenting?
0: We didn't talk about alternative techniques for CTOs when re-entry devices do not work. And do you want to talk about Safari or is that too big of a topic to discuss? I
1: would love to talk about Safari. I think that's an important component for anybody who's treating CLTI to be able to do, right? So I think it has a role here. Let's do it.
0: Okay. So one important point, I think, for for any anyone that's uh, looking to tackle chronic total occlusions, besides having a re-entry device or two uh, that you can use relatively frequently and that you're comfortable with, I think it's also helpful to have strategies for when those devices fail, because it is not infrequent that you are unable to enter the true lumen spontaneously and all your re-entry devices fail. You need to have something uh, another trick up your sleeve and so for most people that that uh secondary trick is is doing a safari safari stands for uh sub-intimal arterial flossing with anti retrograde intervention now there are many people who will not do safari in claudicants and they uh, do not believe that there is that the risk associated with doing a safari for damage to that tibial vessel is too high so if the patient is just presented with claudication then they will not do a safari I think that there are good points on both of those camps. Me personally, I I will do a safari in patients that are presenting with claudication if we are unable to uh, cross a long segment CTO because I believe you can keep your access within the tibial vessel small enough that the risk of damage to that tibial vessel is low. And I typically will just use that retrograde access just for wire passage and uh, will not upsize it to something uh, to a larger access site for passing something like a balloon or passing a a larger snare or other device. Uh, so we try and keep that um, access site uh, relatively low. But the way Safari works is that if you're unable to get back into that true lumen, then you uh, can pass a wire from below.
1: Oh, I have to interrupt. It's actually from the below.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't believe that's embarrassing. I misspoke Yes. Yeah, so when you're coming from the below and you uh, you can pass a wire into the uh space from below and then have those two wires meet within the middle sometimes you can be so lucky as you can have the retrograde uh, wire go into the anti catheter and then go all the way out through the catheter tip again with safari and, and with going sub from uh from the above and from the below there are many different tricks involved in trying to have those two wires meet within the same sub plane at the same location and it can be frustrating, but there's a lot of nuance involved in that, and we could we could spend another two hours talking about Safari. Oh, sure. We're not going to do that, but
1: <laughs> it's past your bedtime. We can't do know, it exactly.
0: <laughs> but it is really beneficial for if you're looking at tackling these CTOs to be familiar with some of the the Safari techniques, so that when you when you find yourself uh, stuck in those situations, you you have a couple tools to throw at it.
1: Safari is one of my favorite things to do as a young attending because I think it. Sometimes, you know, you just look at the cap morphology and you're like, oh, that's totally crossable from the below. And then I feel like, at least for me, after having done a couple cases, I'm more likely to call it quits on the anti approach earlier on and just be comfortable with going from the below. Have, have you felt the same way?
0: Yes, I am. The m- more comfortable I've gotten with safari over my career, the less stubborn I am with, with crossing uh, from above the more willing I am to kind of throw in the towel from the anti-grade approach and go retrograde. And um, I'm always surprised at how how much further you can get true lumen coming from a retrograde access than coming from an anti-grade access. And I know it shouldn't be surprised based on the way chronic total occlusions form and uh, the cap morphology, as you said, and and the way the, uh, the fibrotic nature of the uh, cap from the proximal side versus the distal side, but it's still it's still really interesting to see how far you get true lumen from retrograde.
1: Yeah. While we're talking about alternative access, have you done any cases from radial, like the whole radial to pedal thing that I have seen all over the Twitters?
0: Yeah. So um, as I'm sure you remember well from your time here at UVA, we're slightly old school. And uh, so I don't do as much uh, radial access, especially not for, for PAD. You know, I think the benefit of doing their, a radial approach for a patient with PAD, I, I don't really see that quite as much because it, it limits you in what you're able to do from a kind of the tools that you would use and the uh, interventions that you could perform. You're very much limited by the length that you're coming from and uh, the access site size. So I like to have all my options available and uh, you can get that with a retrograde or an antigrade CFA approach that you can't get through a radial approach.
1: Definitely. Well, that's great, Luke. I, I think we've, we've covered several topics. Uh, in addition to your sending algorithm. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you taking the time out of what I know is a busy work day to, to talk to me. I know that's not easy.
0: I very much appreciate the invitation and uh, it was a, a great discussion and uh, it's one of my favorite topics. So I very much appreciate it.
1: It's one of my favorites too. And I think that's your fault because you're <laughs> when your teachers are excited about something, you get excited about something. That's-
0: yeah, We, we nerded <laughs> up about PAD. So yes, I can appreciate that. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza,
0: Brian Hartley.
2: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon. With support from
0: Caleb Hodson. And Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing
2: led by Brian Schmitz. With support from
1: Zubi Syed.
2: Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson.
1: And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang.
2: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.